Welcome to a brand new episode of Bro Bible's Endless Hustle, brought to you by Boston Market's all-new Nashville Hot Chicken Sandwich. The chicken sandwich wars are over. Enter the Nashville Hot Crispy Chicken Sandwich from Boston Market. The rotisserie everything experts and reigning chicken royalty for more than 30 years are heating things up this winter and putting competitors to shame with its first ever crispy chicken sandwich. Available for a limited time, guests can fire up their taste buds with the Oh Yeah, You're Gonna Sweat Nashville Hot Crispy Chicken Sandwich, plus two additional Nashville Hot menu offerings, including a spicy new take on its famous rotisserie chicken. Available at Boston Market restaurants for a limited time. In addition to being served in restaurant or via drive-thru where available, all menu items from Boston Market can be ordered for takeout, delivery, and contactless curbside pickup by visiting bostonmarket.com or placing an order via the Boston Market app. For additional information on Boston Market, its newest menu offerings, brand news, or to find your nearest location, please visit bostonmarket.com and follow at Boston Market on social media. Hey gang, you're watching and listening to The Endless Hustle. Whammy! I fought a good fight. I finished my football race. And after 18 years, it's time. Basketball players, we're really supposed to shut up and dribble, but I'm glad, I'm glad we do a little bit more than that. Eventually, every ball would go flat, but that doesn't mean that your life will flatline. What will you do when the game is over? Hello, 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 and welcome to episode 31 of Bro Bible's Endless Hustle. I am your host, Matt Cohan, and I am joined, as always, by my main man, Arthur Cade. At the time of this recording, we are less than 48 hours from Super Bowl LV. And it was a doozy, Arthur. I didn't get a chance to catch up with you on the game. What what were your final takes on it? My takeaway is, and I can't believe I'm admitting this, Matt, Tom Brady has officially surpassed Michael Jordan as the GOAT of team sports. I can't believe I just admitted that, but... And what's crazy is the guy's not even done yet. He looked great last night. He managed a perfect game Tampa Bay managed a perfect game both on defense and offense I can't believe what they did to Mahomes Mahomes was literally running as if it was like a little league football game and he was just being chased by bigger kids a kind of a boring Super Bowl overall but I will say it was great to see Gronk and Brady and I can't wait to see the content that they release over the next 24 to 48 hours bragging about this victory because no one does content like Tom Brady. So Brady's the man. That's all you can say. That's really all you can say. It was just so surprising at the Chiefs. It was like, you know, when the most famous play of Mahomes, that Mahomes did or the whole team did all game was that incompletion where he threw it. It was an incredible throw when he was like horizontal and he threw it and it was an incomplete. Like that was their big play for for one of the most prolific offenses in modern NFL history like I could not believe that I could believe that Brady came out with the victory but I know one person who would not believe that and that's our first guest here when you want to do the honors of introducing him Arthur yep well let me just jump in and say we have two guests this episode you'd obviously reference the first one Uh, our first guest is a legend in the comedy space Everyone knows him as Champ Kind from the Anchorman franchise, as well as Todd Packer from the Office franchise. I'm, of course, talking about David Kackner. He has a new movie out called The Right One. It's a Valentine's Day comedy. Super, super funny. We talked about everything with him on this show. We talked Anchorman, The Office, and the, the thing that you had just referenced, Matt. He is a diehard Chiefs fan, and 
I'm almost scared to release this episode because after he listens to it and knows the result of the Super Bowl, he may be like, damn, what happened? <laughs> he was, uh, you got to love his enthusiasm. He was just enthusiastic the entire podcast, but he, there wasn't a doubt in his mind that the Chiefs were going to pull out the victory. He said it plainly. He's like, there's no chance that Brady, Brady pulls it, it out against Andy Reid and Mahomes. So that's what makes it even funnier listening back to this interview and just hearing his enthusiasm and knowing the result. I just love this humor. I mean, we talked about all of the history of the franchises, how we ended up getting the part as Todd Packer, how a character like that could even exist in today's culture. You know, here's a guy who, for lack of a better word, is an esteemed character actor, but he's built such a wonderful career for himself. You just look at David Koechner's IMDb and you're like, man, this guy's been in so many great projects. We're obviously focusing on two of the most prolific but really incredibly funny guy. He obviously brought his A game on the show, which I loved and had us laughing the whole time. You know, I was almost cheering for the Chiefs because I knew we were releasing this episode on Tuesday, but I did want to see Brady win, but I was almost cheering for them because I knew that Keckner was such a fan and I loved Keckner so much. So it was like almost cheering for like your girlfriend's favorite team. But ultimately, it was great to see Brady and Gronk and, and those guys pull it out. I don't feel bad for Keckner at all. I told him this was going to happen. I told him right to his face it was going to happen. And you don't bet against the GOAT. That's like football 101. You do not bet against the GOAT. Keckner was overconfident and, you know, sorry. But it's not, I mean, they're going to be good for the next, what, decade? So I don't, you know, there will be plenty more opportunities. And I hope he gets his next year. Yeah, listen, Mahomes is going to have no shortage of Super Bowl appearances. Although, as Tony Romo said on the broadcast last night, the difference between 6-2 to two with Brady versus Mahomes now 7-1 to one is a very big difference. And now the likelihood, and Keckner made a prediction on the show with us, of him catching Brady is probably less likely. But, hey, we can talk Super Bowl all day. We want to get to our first guest incredible incredible chat with comedy legend anchorman office and now the right one star david kackner we are thrilled to have on today actor comedian writer producer mr champ kind himself david kackner hello david hello how are you i'm fantastic thank you so much where does this podcast find you i'm in los angeles Ah, I've heard of it. Nice. Yes. How about you guys? Where are you guys located? I'm in New York, and this, this schmo is in Boston, but the three of us would probably all want to be in Kansas City, especially you. Well, I, I guess uh, Tampa, more specifically. <laughs> you're, not going, you're not going to the Super Bowl, are you, David? You no, know, I went last year. I took my older brother. I was able, The day I secured my tickets, I called my brother on his 60th birthday, and I said, I'm taking you to the Super Bowl. It was one of those one of those moments you're like, wow, this is great that I'm able to gift this to him on his 60th birthday. And for a, a big thing for our lives, because he and I have been fans since we were preteen. So, yeah, that was a big moment. So, yeah, we went last year, my brother and I. And this year, you know, it's just too much. Yeah. It's just too much. Do you have uh, predictions? Well, sure. I mean, I don't see any other... Outcome except a Chiefs victory. How I mean, this is what I don't get. The definition of insanity. We bet time and time again that Tom Brady's not going to do it. 
you know, how many times does he have to prove, you know, I'm a Boston guy, so I know this through okay. and through. I mean, that's the thing. The, the interesting thing about this Super Bowl is I can't really see either team losing. So that's what makes it so compelling. Really? But, yeah. I mean, I, I, Kansas City has too many weapons, I think, but I just can't see time. I, I think that, that comes down to that. Yeah. We've got so many weapons. What about Gronk? Okay, Kelsey. Yeah. I mean, plus, you know, look, our defense, their defense is rated slightly higher, I believe, correct? Yes. Where our defense always gets it done. Yeah. So everyone's like, yeah, your defense is sus. Okay, we lost one game. So, yeah, I, I just – and like you said, we've got so many weapons. And Andy Reid. Yeah. Come on. May the best man win, I guess, David. Well, the Chiefs are going to win. <laughs> are you still a Brady fan after what he did to you? It, yeah. I guess took, he didn't do anything to you. I guess he didn't do anything to you. It took about eight weeks for me to get used to seeing him with a new – a new lady, if you will, but I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm, he's done so much for me. I can't be like, no, no, you know. That's well, I, I hope. I hope we are in your position in ten years, where the entire country hates us. Yeah, I wish that for you too. <laughs> <laughs> After just a year, the rooting, you know, the overall, you know, country favorite turns away. Last year was clear when clear, you know, the country's rooting for the Chiefs, right? been 50 years and then this year oh they're repeating oh let's don't get greedy yeah we don't like you we kind of hope brady gets his last one and walks away he won't walk away i mean look i'm shocked i thought they're gonna be a 500 ball club so for them to do it i mean hats off and you know thank you for passing the torch from one generation to the other (laughs) I, i love when he asked you for prediction david i expected you to be like mahomes throws for 782 yards 12 touchdowns, you know, uh, Tyreek, 483 yards receiving. I'm surprised how humble you were. Well, I mean, I'm a realist, and, you know, Mahomes could have 400 in the game. Brady's had 500 in a game and lost, correct? You know, Eddie Podolak, I think, once scored 425 all-purpose yards for the Chiefs. He was a, a, a running back for the Chiefs back in the early days, in the se- early 70s, or, or late 60s, early 70s. And he, would, he, would, he was a running back and, uh, you know, a receiving back. He also ran back punts and uh, touchdown returns. That's one of those, that's the old days where you just were utility back. You did all of it. So, but I don't see anybody getting that many yards. Mahomes could get 400, you know, in the game. But again, Brady had passed for 500 and lost. Do you remember that one, Matthew? I forget which one it was. He'd passed for 500 in a loss. I forget which one. I think that might've been the uh, Philly one. Oh, that's right. You're exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. And there again, the entire country was on Philly's side. I don't right. think it's never happened before or since. <laughs> I cracked me up, don't I? Um, but, you know, obviously we just want a great game. And I think this is going to be a great game. Last year was a great game, a good Super Bowl. You know, that's what we want. We just don't want to blow out. I went to that one the year before with um, the Patriots and the Rams. And wow. What a drag. Yeah, what a snooze, huh? Yeah. How did you end up on the Patrick Mahomes contract extension, Zoo? That was a moment. Were you, were you on it? I've seen the moment, and I'm like, how did oh, David Techner end up on this multi-hundred million dollar deal, Zoom? Yeah. It's all press, and then me. Um, I guess it's because I'm a nice person. So I, so I grew up in a small town in Missouri. And I've been a Chiefs fan since I was 10 years old. And, you know, as the thing that you love about show business is the hall pass you get, you know, and I mean hall pass in the best way. Like you get to go down this road or go into this door where nobody else gets to go. It's like, why? There's no real reason because you're in show business. And so 
uh, we started doing this ch uh, charity 12, 13 years ago called The Big Slick, which um, operates in Kansas City for Children's Mercy Hospital. And um, in that, we do a, a venture with the Chiefs as well, where we, um, myself and Rob Riggle, do a tailgate fundraiser for Children's Mercy in usually uh, October, November. The Big Slick is usually in, is always in June, but this is an adjunct event. And so through that, I've gotten to know the Chiefs, gotten to know the players, and some of the players have come to our Big Slick event in the summer. So through that, then we get to know the family and all that stuff. And then I get to know all the PR people. And like that, I'm a nice guy. And I'm guessing that's how it happened. I kind of thought there'd be a few more of the local KC celebrity types on the call, but it turns out it was just me. And I just, look, I, you treat people right. And then that happened. And, you know, Patrick, I've had a, a few interactions with him through the charities and stuff like that. He's a super sweetheart of a guy. So I guess that's how. I changed up one of my questions. One of my jokes went off my off the foot. The first one was going to be they were part of the negotiation. <laughs> he get to be he got to be part owner or he got, he got full ownership of the Bengals, and he, he decided to take more money. Um, but I think I changed it up to the Raiders and I, I whiffed it. I, I I pooched it. But anyway, uh, it's, fun, it's funny you mentioned Rob Riggle because I, I interviewed him at the College Football National Championship a couple of years ago, and he might be the only guy nicer than you. Like, that oh, guy wow. is just a sweetheart, huh? He's a horror of a human. <laughs> Behind the scenes. I know. Well, I, That's I, how I you love, all are, you Hollywood types. Right? I love Rob. That's an easy thing to do. Uh, so Rob's family grew up in a smaller town than mine, about 20, or 20 miles away from that. So, you know, he comes from a, 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 his parents early on were, you know, uh, grew up as farmers. So there's a good resonance of humility in that family. And I've had great interactions with his parents. And so he, he nearly feels like family. He went to the same high school as my ex-wife. And so that all kind of feeds in there too. Like she knew him before I did. I love this whole KC group of super fans. You, Rod, Riggle. I've got to imagine there's like a group text and some of the shit being said on that group text has got to be bonkers. <laughs> the most bonkers group text is between me, Riggle, and Nick Schwartzen because Schwartzen is a, uh, a Minnesota Vikings fan. And so just at random times, there'll be a really disgusting text from, from Nick Schwartzen. <laughs> Either about the Chiefs or about the Vikings. And th those are actually more active than the, the, the group of us. And I couldn't read those to you. Well, I guess you're, you're, you're um, we're broke. Text is usually involved in those tweets, not, or texts, not tweets. But. David, I got to say before I forget here that you voice, uh, you know, in one of my favorite shows, Bob Pogo. You know, oh. that some of the most impressively repulsive cottage cheese eating the entertainment industry will ever see. Can you talk a little bit about that role? And uh, is voice acting in the industry, are you like salivating to get that because it's like zero work relatively to everything else you guys do? First of all, uh, are you a bigger fan, do you think, because it's Bill Burr? Yeah, I'm a huge Bill Burr fan. Yeah, me yeah. too. I love Bill. I was so excited when I met him. I forget, I don't know how many years ago. What a wonderful guy he is. And come on, as far as stand-up, he's just the fucking shit. So Bill and I met, and we got along right away. We used to have a standing monthly steak dinner that hasn't happened in years. Like, when are we going to get some meat? Hey, Keckner, come on. So um, they just gave me the job. That's the thing. And Mike Price was a longtime Simpsons guy. I think he's still in The Simpsons. He and Bill created this amazing 
fucking animated show. They gave me that that job. And so it, it's one of those things, when you look at your career and the things that you hope that you're part of, that's one of them. Because I've never done a voice on The Simpsons and that'd be a feather in your cap just to do any voice, just a guest voice. You'd be like, yay! But to be on the show semi-regularly, F is for family, it, it's so brilliant and um, it's so well-written. And to make other people laugh, uh, like the creator, makes your heart just swell with joy. Yeah, and the, you know, it's so well-written. You just you, That thing just kind of came to me, the Bob Pogo thing. I think Mike helped me mold it there a little bit, but uh, it's one of those rare things. It's, it's just, it's certainly a point of pride when I look at my resume and like, oh shit, look at that. I'm on FS for family. That's amazing. My son, my son who's 21 is a huge fan. So that, you know, for a dad, you're like very happy for that too. Amazing. Well, two other projects that have resonated culturally, unlike anything else. And I want to talk about both of them, but I'll start with The Office. One is out cold and waiting. What happened? (laughs) (laughs) I was actually referring to The Office and Anchorman, but I want to start with The Office. You got to you got to give me the background. First of all, that character was just pure gold. How, How much fun it? did you have doing that? You know, you can't speak to anyone in life like that and get away with it. I mean, I I, I couldn't. I couldn't live with myself. So I, I liken that role to being in a nice warm bath and you get to splash all the water out of the tub. And when you get out, you're completely dry and you walk away. It's just there's, you know, you're going to do anything you want. He's an emotional hand grenade. There you go. Boom. Bye. So that was a lot of fun. Steve Carell actually uh, recommended me for the role. I was up in Canada shooting snakes on a plane. You're welcome. And um, they were having some trouble casting the role. And uh, they'd already shot part of the episode. And so Carell goes, how about Kechner? Because I've known Steve since Second City back in Chicago. So I've known Steve since the early 90s. And uh, so, yeah, I just I, I walked into that one and it was hand in glove. I mean, I knew what it was. And it, to me, the point is to make this guy so awful that it's making fun of guys like that. Sadly, there are people out there going, yeah, cool. Right. Packer, the best. Like, no, he's not the best. He's the worst. But uh, so that's how that came about. And it's, it's amazing to me that Packer's as popular as he is. I only did two episodes a season. You know, I guess it's one of those things you don't want too much Packer. Yeah, right? you can't have too much Packer. You can't have sure. too much. Carell has gone on record saying he doesn't believe that the climate today is conducive for it to succeed. Were you surprised when that came to an end? And is there any chance that it gets revived? I wasn't surprised because, you know, Steve left the show. And I don't think from accounts, I mean, I, like, I don't know. But from accounts, I guess it wasn't the same. So I don't see how it would come back. If it did, my guess is you could probably get a... a uh, a 10 episode commitment from everybody. But so you're looking at, uh, um, not to be sexist, but the three guys that are probably the busiest are Carell, Krasinski and Wilson, Rain. So if, if uh, uh, you know, their schedule opened up in such a way that the three of them could do it, I, I could see them doing a 10 episode season. 22, I wouldn't think would happen at all, but uh, 10 episode, you know, money speaks volumes, doesn't it fellas? I mean, look, you got me here. <laughs> yeah, went, too bad our check might bounce later, David. <laughs> oh, I'll never know. <laughs> hey, by the way, Krasinski, did you have any idea that that guy would become one of the biggest stars on the planet? 
I didn't. I mean, to be honest, he was such a sweetheart. I remember when I started the show, such a sweetheart. And then, of course, he turned into an absolute monster. We all know that. Uh, no, you, you never know. You hope people get uh, a second bite of the apple, right? But I love Jack Ryan. That's a great show. And he does such a great job with it. I'm so happy when the good guys get more. And he's one of them. He's just a wonderful human being. You know, he's one of those guys and he's a big star now, but you know, like I'll see the people less and less just cause you know, I've got five kids, everyone's got kids. You don't live in the same part of town. So you'll, you'll see each other at events or premieres. And he's a guy that'll look you in the eye, right? And not look over your shoulder to see who else is in the room. It's that type of person that you go, all right, good, good guy. He's a, he's a lovely human. So, but yeah, very impressive in, in that Jack Ryan. I was so happy for him. Oh, by the way, how about, um, the Quiet, what's that one called? The Quiet, quiet Place. Oh my God. Fucking Roan directed it? Yeah. It's amazing. I thought it was slightly overrated. I, really? I love John Krasinski. I thought it was a little overrated. I, I didn't hear anything about it before I saw it. And I guess maybe the fact that I saw it in a screening room with John Krasinski might have also uh, imbued a little more love. I feel like Kechner's fighting for a role in Krasinski's next movie. He's like, he's Jesus Christ, the second coming. <laughs> I never, I never think, I learned years ago, never think, why not me? Not once, you know? If you're right, you're right. Because I've created projects before too. Some of them go, some of them don't. But you never, you can never promise anybody a job because you might not have that power when it comes down to it. Hell, you might not even be in it, you know? Um, plus, it's just, you got to be the right person at the right time. You can't walk away and go, what the fuck? Why didn't you give me something? Like, why didn't you go get something, right? So you, you can't ever live that, why not me? I mean, for me, the joy is if you get to work with your friends, you're happy. But, you know, I'm sure you guys have friends that, why am I not on your podcast, right? Yeah. I mean, that happens. And so I never want to have that mindset of, 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 Lack, I guess. There's plenty for everybody. God knows I've had more than I should have. Speaking of friends, David, you got two guys who grew up with Anchorman. So how oh, many okay. times How many times a day do you get champ kind lines thrown at you on the street? Well, it depends on where you are, of course. Obviously, if you're in the airport, you'll get that a lot more. If you're out in public, if you're uh, doing a show, obviously, they're going to be yelling that stuff out. But these, it's, it's always funny because you never know anymore what it's going to be. A couple years ago, my daughter, who's now 19, so it must have been like three years ago, we we're leaving a Starbucks and we're here in Los Angeles and the Starbucks was at an intersection. We look and I saw these two younger ladies slow down right before the light. I saw the window come down. I'm like, what is this going to be? They're like, hey, Uncle Earl. So I did a, three episodes of uh, Hannah Montana for them, you know, and so you never know. But yeah, you know, whammy quite a bit. I love when it's blammy or blammo. Uh, I remember some guy chased me down the street in San Diego once, of course. And he goes, I loved you in Anchorman and I loved you in Hot Tub Time Machine. And I'm like, I'm in one of them. I'm like, no. Yeah, I'm in one of them. So that's always funny to me. You've been in so many of those good movies, though. It's like, like you could just pick a funny movie and like you've probably had a role in it. That's a great compliment to you, but... On the back end of that. I'm very fortunate in that uh, I, I turn up. You know, I've been, I've got a career where, you know, I don't have to be the lead. And uh, 
so I, I, it gives me more latitude. Like, I don't have an ego about stuff, right? Oh, we're supposed to be talking about a movie right now. <laughs> Damn it. I don't, I don't you're telling me how you're always the bridesmaid, never the bride, you know? It wasn't even the question, David. <laughs> so that means you're probably going to get laid. <laughs> that um, is actually true. I, uh, it, to me, it's like, I love to work. I started working for my father when I was seven years old. So part of it is like, just, just work. And I've got five kids. So it's always, you know, I don't turn anything down. If you look at my resume, there's evidence of that. You did this? You did Piranha 3 Double D? Good God, man. So yeah, part of that probably is, is five kids. And so I'll never say no to stuff. Um, and, and part of it is just good fortune. And part of it is just fucking wicked talent. I'm going to put you on the spot, David. Give Love me it. an Anchorman story that you've never told before. Never that- told that you never told that is going to blow our minds. Oh shit, that's a tough order, guys. <laughs> never told that'll blow your minds. There's not one I haven't told. I think that's a good story. You know what I mean? Okay, well, it won't blow your minds. There's, there's. You are you aware that there's a second movie called Wake Up, Ron Burgundy? No. Oh well, there you go. So the original movie had a completely different ending. In the original movie, there was uh, a completely different subplot, where. There's a group called the Alarm Clock. Now, I'm going to have to go into this a little bit. In the 70s, there were domestic terrorist groups. One was called the SLA, and they had, they had kidnapped an heiress, a newspaper heiress named Patty Hearst. Now, that was real and dangerous and tragic. But in our thing, they're mirroring the idea during the 70s that there were all types of groups trying for insurrection. There's a group uh, uh, of befuddled terrorists who weren't very good at it and didn't really have a mission. Like they, they were, guy was always working on his manifesto and uh, Chuck D was in that Chuck D Amy Poehler, Maya Rudolph. And um, so in the end of the movie, they, they kidnap Veronica Corningstone and they take her to an observatory and we go rescue her. So I don't know that, I guess it's been told, but you guys didn't know about them, but that movie is either on YouTube or it's available for purchase. And I'm sure I'm gonna get 13 cents if you purchase that movie, but it's called Wake Up Ron Burgundy, got a completely different plot. I think almost every shot in the movie is a different take than the one from the original movie. And in that movie, there's a thing that got cut from the, the film that hurt me because I had this nice long ramble where I'm declaring my champ is declaring his love for Ron Burgundy in a really intense way, even saying that he wants to be inside of him. So we're, we're driving to go rescue Veronica Corningstone and um, Judd Apatow is actually uh, directing that scene because it's a B unit. It wasn't the main unit that day because we were off having to do it in a car. It was a hundred degrees outside. We're somewhere between uh, Burbank and Glendale driving around back and forth on this movie trailer. That's when they pull a car behind a camera truck. Uh, the car's not actually driving. We pretend you're driving, but you see the real world happening behind you. And none of us were wearing pants because it was so hot and we were wearing, wearing wool, wool suits. How about for a long ass drawn out story, not a great punch, didn't blow you away. I think we're gonna cut this from the actual <laughs> <laughs> No, that was great. But let me ask you this question, right? Is it true that the DreamWorks founder initially passed on Anchorman because he thought Will Ferrell didn't have the star quality? That could be. I, I'm, I'm vaguely familiar, glancingly familiar with that. Walter uh, Parks doesn't ring a bell. 
Uh, he was eventually a producer on the first movie, so he may have passed. They may have passed once or twice. That'd be a Will or, or Adam question. Interesting. I know this. Uh, it was between me and and three other guys. There were four of us, and this is when there's still VCR. So, for you folks, your your parents had a VCR. It was a big tape they'd put into this big machine, and that's how you'd watch an audition. And of course, I knew Will and Adam. I'd known Adam since uh, 1991, and this is 2003. And I'd known Will since 95, but they couldn't give me the movie. They were they didn't have that power. So I auditioned for Champ Kind with you know every other comic in town, and it was down to me and three other guys. And so they were smart enough to go, oh, we we like him the best. They just said, don't say anything because you know it's a power game here. You don't want to put your thumb on the scale. And so I was very fortunate when my tape came up after the, the, the producer who had the deciding was the decider said, why not that guy? And they're like, fuck yes. And so they, they actually called me, which is not protocol. Your agent's supposed to call you and said, we didn't call you, but you're going to go to the call and you got the job. So that was fun that, you know, your friends could, that's where your friends, they might want you to get you the job, get you, you to get the job, but they can't give you the job at that point in time. So that was fun. By the way, David, we got to plug your new movie, The Right One, which the is right one. on digital, on demand, February 5th, Blu-ray DVD, February 9th. Congrats on that new movie, man. Yes. Uh, Nick Thune is a friend of mine. And um, I was told that Ken wrote the part for me, but I don't know how it never got to my attention. It's a small role. So like that, I don't have an ego about stuff. I just love to work. And Nick's a friend of mine. He goes, hey, listen. The director wants me to ask, because he's got this part, he had you in mind for it. I don't, I get, I don't know if you wrote it for me, you had me in mind for it. He goes, it would shoot one day, uh, they were shooting in Vancouver, any chance you do? And I said, yeah, why not? I was shooting the television show, Bless This Mess at the time. So I actually had to fly up on a Saturday night, shot all day Sunday, and then flew back Sunday night. So that was fun. I think I originally shot four or five scenes, they ended up using two of them, but it was fun. Like that, I love Nick. And I was talking to Eliza Schlesinger the other day. I didn't even know she was in the movie. <laughs> she is so good in the picture. I had not seen her in a, a lot of roles. I know she's had a sketch show, but I hadn't seen her in a lot of movies. And I was, I was really uh, impressed. So I was very happy for her. Before we let you go, David, we always conclude with something called the Hustle Round. It's brought to you by Boston Market's all-new Nashville Hot Sandwich. We're going to fire a bunch of quick-hitting questions, and you're going to have to make some hard choices. You Mark, got can I ask you one question? Yes. Uh, how do you say Boston Market? Boston Market. Okay, thank you. All right, Arthur. <laughs> Can you say it like that before we go, David? Boston you... Market. Boston Market, give me a parliament. So you've got to choose between the two I'm going to give you. Okay. You've got less than three seconds for each one, so let's have some fun. You ready? Yes. The Office or Anchorman? Anchorman. Will Ferrell or Adam Sandler? Will Ferrell. SNL or In Living Color? SNL. Eddie Murphy or Richard Pryor? Fuck. Oh, three seconds are up. I guess I don't get to choose. No, you got to give me one. This is a good one. Give me one. Well, the thing is, without Richard Pryor, there's no Eddie Murphy in the way that we love Eddie Murphy, so Richard Pryor. The Forum or Madison Square Garden? I've never been to the, uh, the Forum. I guess because I'm here, I don't really have allegiance to either one. I've gone to, I think I've gone to one show at each. Kansas City Chiefs, Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Uh -huh. Chiefs, baby. 
How about those Chiefs? Better long-term career, Mahomes or Brady? Mahomes. Wow. I can, we can dispute that one. Oh, this guy's crying. Matthew, matches. Matches, it's okay. Three decades in the industry soils your brain, I guess. Jesus. <laughs> Is it only three? Does it count that I started uh, taking classes in the 80s? Your Wikipedia says you were active 1986. So that's my okay. you on like a toothpaste commercial or something. Wait, so, but now it's 2021. So does that give me four decades? It's three and a half. I round down because you've got a oh. lot more in the tank, David. Oh, this, this guy. Um, well, you know, the thing is, these days, who knows? Brady had one injury year, right? Yeah, he had the 11 and five year when Matt Castle came in and we didn't even, we didn't make the playoffs. But who then was the chief? Yeah, it was that um, So is that the only year he had a major injury? Yeah, a, a full season injury. Yep. yep. Yeah. And I guess you could also argue that there have been more limitations put on the defense now against quarterbacks, correct? I mean, you probably. Um, yeah. So given that, that perhaps he could have at least an equal career. So, um, I mean, it's, it's a tough one. Like, but, but if anybody can do it, right? And I know we're way early. This is his third year, right? We're way early. So, but if anyone could do it from this perspective, it is Mahomes. You've got to spend the day with one person, Jim or Pam. Do I have to be Packer all day? You have to be Packer. Oh, then he was, he's going to spend it with Pam. Better coach, Andy Reid, Bill Belichick. <laughs> for real or for heart? For real. It's Belichick. God, that hurt. It takes a man to admit that. You know, you've totally redeemed yourself from that shitty story earlier. Today. <laughs> <laughs> you can't go against Belichick. Better human, Andy Reid. Who, who, you know, <laughs> look, I mean, Belichick's the greatest. Christ in heaven. The guy's amazing. But, you know, give us a couple more years and maybe you'll say, well, Andy Reid is right there. But how many, how many rings does Belichick have? Good six. Has six. I didn't know if he had one as an assistant coach. No? Um, he may. No. He was a Giants defensive coordinator. Yeah. He might have seven or eight, actually. Without was, he, was he with um, Tuna? He might have two more rings under the Giants. I think he might have eight. Well, there you go. Better dresser, Andy Reid or Bill Belichick? Jesus Christ, Reid. <laughs> Can't beat the hoodies. Put those scissors down, Belichick. <laughs> David, you've been an absolute joy, man. Congratulations on the brand new movie. The you're right on. You're awesome, man. You're welcome back anytime. Hopefully, we don't have to have you on every year to talk about a Chiefs Super Bowl because uh, I don't know if I could take it. I hope you do. Last thing I want to mention, I've got a thing going called Hey Good Meeting. Look it up. Uh, during the pandemic, you know, you've got to hustle, right? And I saw there was a need in business for entertainment beyond Cameo. Cameo's great, but rather than that, to have an interaction with a celebrity and a customized show, heygoodmeeting.com. And we put on customized shows. We drop into your Zoom. It's not pre-recorded. Awesome. A pleasure, guys. Pleasure meeting you. Before you go, David, can you give us a quick uh, whammy on the way out? Yes. Hey, gang, you're watching and listening to The Endless Hustle. Whammy! <laughs> Oh my God, you still got it after all these years. How disappointed if I had just gone, hey, whammy.
<laughs> you are the man. Thanks so much, David. Pleasure, guys. All right, folks, that was an incredible chat with David Koechner. Make sure to check out his hilarious new movie, The Right One. It's in select theaters and on DVD and Blu-ray now. Wonderful, wonderful time with David Koechner. I mean, so in preparation for this, this is something I'd advise everybody to do. I looked at Todd Packer, like the best of Todd Packer from The Office. It's like an eight minute long clip. It's like got a million views or something. But I watched that and I literally was in tears laughing. It was this character. And I know Steve Carell said that in this climate, The Office probably wouldn't be able to exist and stuff. And and I was like, I've always found that a little confounding. And then I looked at Todd Packer's character, just how over the top he is. And I was like, yeah, well, he may be right. But I mean, he is just hilarious in everything he does. He's even got a role in 40-Year-Old Virgin. He's obviously Anchorman. I mean, this guy, if he's in it, I'm watching it. Yeah, his delivery is unparalleled. He's got whatever that super arrogant asshole delivery where he can pull that thing off and just make the most obscene stuff as funny as humanly possible. Keckner's got that delivery. And hey, that's why he's David Keckner. Speaking of legends, by the way, our next guest, I would actually characterize him, Matt, and I think you'd agree as an NBA legend. He's one of the most prolific scorers of our generation, a seven-time NBA All-Star. Big three champion and MVP of that new league that Ice Cube started that's been a huge hit and just announced that he's joining Team USA Basketball. I'm talking about ISO Joe, Joe Johnson. Great interview with this guy, Matt. Great interview with Joe Johnson. He 20,000 point scorer, 200 million in his career. Uh, I mean, he's quietly had a really, really nice career. And we talked a little bit about this with him, about how just kind of, his demeanor is very subdued. He's not a um, self-flagellator. He's not a guy who necessarily puts himself out there in a branding sense as you know some of the other guys in the NBA would. It was really refreshing because he almost is of, of the mindset. He's like, I'm going to let my play speak for itself and that's who I'm going to be. And I, I know he's run into a little trouble with that about people, uh, about teams wanting to take him a more of a leadership role. Um, but he's just like a quiet guy. He's even, and he's very thoughtful. And I thought this was a really good chat. Yeah. And listen, the guy's made over $200 million in his career. That's the win all in itself right there. (laughs) And we discovered some really cool facts about him. For instance, Joe Johnson is a huge fan of hot yoga and actually even invited you and I, Matt, to jump on a plane and head down to Atlanta. (laughs) Although you're about to get married, but I'm single. And I made that clear. Sounds like a great place to, potentially meet some future wives of Arthur Cade. <laughs> I was like, dude, I would, I would love to be there. Any, any wingman ish. I know you don't need me if you have Joe Johnson, but I would love to be there for any help you need because hot yoga. I'd have to admit that there are probably some uh, pretty desirable mates potentially for you, Arthur. <laughs> yeah. And I also loved, listen, obviously we just celebrated the one year anniversary of Kobe Bryant's passing. Joe has intimate knowledge. He's played against and with Kobe Bryant. So for him to be able to describe to us how much of a fan he was of Kobe, what it was like going up against him, how we met him the first time. And he even called him the number eight Kobe. I, you know, I always forget that people look at Kobe's career in two waves, number eight and number 24. And Joe talking about how much he was a fan of number eight and had his posters. And then to go up against him was so freaking cool. And then also, listen, I mentioned earlier, the big three, 
Ice Cube, you know, to see what this guy has created with this league, he's getting all these former NBA All-Stars. The ratings were great. The competition was great. Joe led his team to the championship the last year that they just played pre-COVID. And he won the MVP. It just tells you, man, even at the end of his career, Joe's still in tip-top shape. And the fact that he's joining Team USA Basketball, which was announced after our chat with him, it just shows you Joe may not be done. So, hey, guys, without further ado, here is NBA ISO sharpshooting killer Joe Johnson. We are thrilled to have on the Endless Hustle podcast today, seven-time All-Star, Big Three champion and MVP, none other than ISO Joe, Joe Johnson. Joe, welcome to the pod. Thank you, man. What's up, guys? Chilling, man. How have you been? How have you been post? So you spent 18 seasons in the NBA. 2020 was your first full year not in the NBA since, I believe, 2001. How has that transitioned into life beyond the NBA been? It's got its, you know, its challenges uh, because, you know, my, naturally, mentally in my body, I just feel like I have to be in peak shape at this time of the year for whatever reason. You know, I've, I've always, you know, enhanced my uh, my weightlifting and things of that sort. So I'm always in great shape this year. So, yeah, it's, it's a big difference. It's, it's going to take some getting used to. Joe, 18 years in the NBA, you obviously had a fantastic career, over 20,000 points. Not a lot of people can say that. What's the secret to the success? Man, taking care of your body. You know, for me, I found out early because I dealt with, you know, tendonitis in my knees and Achilles when I was playing here in Atlanta. And uh, I got into yoga early, man, at like 26, 27. So that has kept me going, man. You got to, you know, you get one body, bro. You got to take care of it. And that's what I do. Yoga. That's, whenever I hear players say that, I think it's all like BS. Nah, bro. Look, y'all got to come to a class with me. It's hot yoga. It's, it's like 110 degrees, 40 degree humidity, 90 minutes. Like this, is the best thing your body, your body will love you for this. What are the benefits of the of the mind and body, if you don't mind me asking? Uh, the, the the detoxification helps with inflammation, gets rid of, get, gets rid of inflammation, and for me, those are probably two of the key the keyest things. Uh, and you know, I, I just love the way I feel after class, man. It's like I feel like a whole new person. Like 30, 40 minutes after class, it's it's, it's nothing like it. Like I'm 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 really addicted. I mean, I'm single, so I'm all about those classes because usually it's some gorgeous women showing up. So coming with a coming with a guy who scored twenty thousand points in the NBA, ah. we're walking in hand in hand. I'm engaged. Hey, I'll, I'll look at the menu too. You know. Hey, listen, listen. It, it, it ain't, they ain't gonna let you down. <laughs> they ain't gonna let you down. All right, be looking for some eye candy. It'll be some eye candy enough for you. All right. Well, Atlanta, Georgia yoga. We're waiting for the uh, invite and we'll be there. <laughs> I'm on Expedia right now, literally booking my ticket. <laughs> From what I understand, you have a 14 year old son, too, who wants to who kind of keeps you in shape. Well, he's he wants to follow in his dad's footsteps. Right. Yeah, he does, man. Uh, his name is Gavin. Yeah, he definitely does. So, you know, we wait. We work daily. You know what I mean? I, I keep him mad and I tell him, you know, I try to give him tips and I, you know, I pretty much know what it'll take for him to get there. You know, he just has to be, you know, patient, work hard, and uh, I think everything will come to him, man. He just got to take his time with it. Is there a fine line for you as a dad to encourage him without making him feel like he's, like, destined to be the second coming of Joe Johnson? Uh, I think that's probably 
one of the hardest things. Uh, but I, I, I never put any pressure on him, man. But I do tell him, you know, if you really want to be great at this, then we got to work. You know what I mean? But uh, I'm not a rah-rah type of dad, man. I just kind of tell him things I think they can help him. And if I see things that, that I don't think can help him, I tell him. You know, I'm straightforward with him, and that, that's how our relationship is going to be. But that little fine line, being dad and, you know, kind of helping him, that's yeah, it's tough. Joe, you'd mentioned not being a rah-rah guy. And obviously that's one of the signatures of your career. We have so many players that it's all about building a brand now. You were kind of the quietest superstar probably the last 20 years. You were that guy who everybody respected in the league. You put up the stats, you did great, but you didn't say anything. Was there ever a thought that, hey, I need to really step up and build my brand? I mean, you made 200 million, so it's not like you're hurting, but yeah. was there ever a thought there's more opportunity that I'm not taking advantage of and I've got to try to build my brand. When I was younger, no, I wasn't thinking like that. It's just been probably kind of recent, you know what I mean? And for me, it's been strictly because of my kids. You know, my daughter's seven, my son's 14. So I'm just trying to lead by example. I know what my son, you know, I kind of know what he wants out of life. So I'm just trying to start here with him and we can just build steps and he can take over all this. But that's how I'm trying to help, just by leading by example, showing him that it can still be done, you know, no, no matter what age or, you know, how old you are. What are your thoughts about when you see these younger players? I mean, there's such an emphasis now on social media and the brand building. I mean, Zion is a perfect example. That guy was the most famous basketball player on the planet outside of LeBron already in high school. Do you, yeah. Are you a fan of these young men already thinking so much about their brand rather than living in the gym potentially? This is what it is nowadays. You know, uh, the social media kind of rules, you know, pretty much everything that goes on, you know, around the world. So, uh, and these kids know that. So it's tough, man. I do I do think, you know, from time to time, you do have a few who still go to the gym and put in that work. But, you know, a lot of times it almost seems like, yeah, they're doing it for the ground. Yeah, and this is what I respect about you, Joe. You have like 80 Instagram posts and, you know, you don't define yourself by who you are on social media when, I think a lot of people go way far the other way. So I got to give you your props for that. You know, kind of impressive that you're able to be, you know, you don't take too much of your self-worth or whatever off who you are online. I'm an introverted heart. You know, that's me. So to to, to plaster my uh, life, you know, all on social media, I just can't do it. You know, I give you bits and pieces, you know, especially being with the kids uh, or even working out. But. You know, it's just certain things, man, that I think is so personal, you know, for me that, you know, like I wouldn't I wouldn't put on Instagram. I wouldn't put it out there for everybody to know. You'd mentioned you're in Atlanta now, Joe, and you spent seven years in Atlanta. You were essentially the face of that franchise. When you look at what's happening with them now, they've got an unbelievable young core. What are your thoughts about what you're seeing with the Hawks right now? I love their team, man. Uh, I think you know they they are they they've turned they've turned their curve pretty much as far as trying to be a playoff team. I think everybody knows that you know this year they should be a uh, you know a contending team. You just have to kind of wait probably another year or so for those young guys like Hunter and Reddish for those guys to come along and really step up, man, and give them and fill that void that that the Hawks are needing. You know, those two guys I think can be two way wings for you who can score and lock down lockdown offensive guys so I think it's you know it's things of that sort because their bigs are great you know Capella and and, and uh, the other big kid uh what's his name Collins Collins they hold it down down there and then you know Trey's gonna be Trey but you know those guys gotta take the pressure off Trey to make his job a little easier 
I wanted to ask you about that because you were a ball dominant guard. I mean, obviously the nickname ISO Joe, there was very few people who were better in the one-on-one one-on-one environment at breaking down their defender. Is it harder when you're a Joe Johnson playing with another ball dominant guard, like a Trey young, or do you enjoy something like that? If you were in that situation? No, it's not hard for me. Cause I didn't come into the league as a ball dominant guy. I came into the league as a defender, man. I played with Paul Pierce and Antoine Walker. I had to guard, T-Mac, Reggie Miller, Ray Allen. Like, that's the only way I can stay on the court. So then I get traded to Phoenix. Now I'm playing with Stephon Marbury, Penny Hardaway, Sean Marion. You don't give up about seven shots on a good night. You know what I mean? So I didn't come in with the luxury to have the ball to be able to, you know, do my thing early. I defended. Then I played with Nash. I was a catch and shoot pretty much, and I backed him up playing point. And then when I got to Atlanta, I was able to kind of, you know, give you a little bit of that ha-ha. But for the most part, Man, my 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 uh, career has uh, been adjusting, you know, everywhere I've been, you know, I've had to adjust. I'm a Boston guy, and I remember we drafted you, what, in 2001, and you had a few – you had a great stretch of games, and we were yeah. doing before then. And then – who was it? O'Brien was the coach then. And then yeah. you, you shipped you off for, like, Milt Palacio when you were shipped, like a promising young prospect. Like, what was going through your head there knowing that you had put in the work in – put in the performance, and then all it got you was traded. I just felt that I wasn't wanted at that time uh, because I didn't know and understand the business, man. But I kind of found out later that, you know, I had created value for myself, and they didn't want to mess that up, so they benched me until they traded me. But I didn't, you know, I never, I didn't understand that. Like, how you bench, how you bench me, I'm a rookie averaging 13 points a game, shooting over 50% from the field and the three, playing with this team, the Boston Celtics with Antoine Walker, Paul Pierce, had never been to the playoffs. This our first time. We like number three in the East. So, I, you know, that was puzzling for me. I couldn't understand that until I got older. But, uh, I mean, that was just that's the nature of the business. We had Deshaun Jackson on the show last week. And if you're a football fan, he's obviously one of Philadelphia's most beloved athletes probably the last 15 years. And he talked about that when Philly shipped him out the first time, he yeah. was on a mission every time he came back to absolutely annihilate them. Did you have that same feeling with Boston when they shipped you out? Man, listen, Boston shipped me out to Phoenix, and we probably had about probably not even a month before we came back to Boston and played. I came off the bench because, like I said, I was playing behind Steph Penn and Sean, but I had about 19 points, and they it was a flary 19 points, too. It wasn't like, you know, like you just, oh, I didn't know you had 19. It was – you know, it was nice. And uh, that was probably one of the most satisfying moments because you come back to the group of guys, man, who you grinded with. That, that, that was my rookie year. Them guys took me under their wing. That's who I hung out with. And all of a sudden, I don't, you know, we barely talking now. So, yeah, when I when I came back to Boston as a rookie, yeah, I did kind of, you know, take it personal. I'm such an enormous fan of KG, although unlike this guy over here, I'm not a Celtics fan. I'm a lifelong Lakers fan. But yeah. I'm such a KG guy because that's a dude, if I'm going to war, I want him on the court with me. What What's he like as a teammate when you get to experience that firsthand? That dude is, uh, he's special, bro. I don't know. I just think every day I've seen him, I'm telling you, every day I would get to practice, the dude would have a story for me. You know what I mean? Like he hadn't been through so much, you know, in his life that he would have a story for me almost every day, man. And he was, he was unbelievable at telling stories, but he was a hell of a motivator as well. You know, he knew how to motivate his team, his team, bro. He was a great, great leader. 
How much would you guys crack up when you would hear some of the stuff that he dropped on the court? Because he's legendary for some of the one-liners and and, and uh, trash talk he comes out with. It's unreal. But, you know, once you've been practicing with him and, you know, going going against him in practice and things of that sort, whatever, he, you, you know, you know he's going to probably at some point cross the line. That's just what it is, man. That's just who he was. But, you know, at the end of the day, dog, you know, when you left the gym, or your family came around, he always made sure everybody was straight. So uh, he always looked out. We talked about you being laid back, but in 2014, when you were at the Nets, you called the team selfish, which was a ballsy move considering Garnett was on the team. Did that ever cross your mind that you might – Garnett actually ac- agreed with you on that sentiment, but did that ever cross your mind like, oh, shit, maybe I shouldn't do this because this guy's a psychopath? Nah, man, that, those are, uh, you know, in, in the midst of, you know, battling – you know, those are those my truest feelings. You know, uh, we had some great times in Brooklyn, but we also had some tough ones as well. And that year we first got those guys, KG, Paul Pierce, Jason Terry. Man, we started off like 12 games under 500. We was on the cover of Sports Illustrated. So, yeah, we like, you know, we always, you know, piss. Joe, your whole life you've been at the top of the mountain. You're Mr. Arkansas basketball. Then you start Arkansas and you're SEC all-freshman. You have all the accolades. And then you get into the league and you're essentially a role player. What's that mentality shift like for a guy who's always been the star to have to take a step back and not be able to be the star anymore in the beginning? It's like a wait your turn moment. and But you have to understand that when you're young. You know what I mean? Like It's not that you, that you feel like you're going to be come off the bench your entire career, you're like, man, when I get a chance to lead a team, I want to X, Y, Z. You know what I mean? So it's almost just put in the work and everything else will come. Uh, so that's, that's just kind of how I looked at it. When was the moment for you that you realized you were taking that jump from I'm a role player to I can be the first or second, you know, star on a major team at that point? When I was playing in Phoenix, this was my third year in the league and we traded Penny Hardaway and Stephon Marbury to New York. I just remember uh, uh, Coach D'Antoni was like, all right, now, it's your time. Let's go. <laughs> Me and Amari. Me and Amari, I was uh, I was playing more of the one-two, and Amari was just whatever. He just threw him out there. It didn't matter what position he played. He was a freak. From that point on, man, from that point on, I knew, you know, that, that my time had came. You played on teams with guys like Steve Nash, like you said, Amari, Kevin Garnett, in Atlanta, Tyron Lue was a coach. Uh, was there one player who stood out to you that when he spoke, everyone kind of fell in line? I would probably say – I'll probably say KG. Or or you can say Nash. I mean, Nash just – you know, he, he wasn't a rah-rah kind of guy neither, but he would get pissed at times, you know, and, and get on us. And you got to think at that time I was a young guy. I mean, I was like 23, 24 – you know, so so he he would do things of that sort, and we all you know we fell in line behind him, man. He let us, you know, he averaged I think he averaged like sixteen points that year and like 11, 12 assists. The first year he got MVP, he easily could have averaged twenty five, but he sacrificed that, knowing that me and Q was out there. And, you know what I mean? He 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 would feed us here and there, but for the most part, man, he was an unbelievable teammate. Everyone always talks about D'Antoni in the seven seconds or less era. What was it like playing under that dude when it was pretty much like shoot wherever, whenever? It was fun, but I don't even – I'm not sure if it was even planned to be the way it was with myself, Nash, Q, Amari, and Sean. I'm going to be honest with you. Uh, the year we went and got Nash and Q, I felt it was 
supposed to be more of a competition between me and Q because I wasn't that consistent at that time. So I thought they brought Q in for me and him to kind of battle at the two or the three, but nobody kind of knew. Like, it wasn't like me and Q was on teams the whole time in training camp. Like, we was going against each other a lot. Then once the first preseason game came, he just threw all us out there at once. And Sean is a hybrid, meaning you can – at that time, nobody was playing small fours at the four. He put Sean at the four and put Amari at the five, and it worked. It worked, man. Nash, you know, drove that car, meaning, you know, him and Amari, that two-man game, you had to, you know, double, triple team that, which opened up the floodgates for guys like myself and Q. And Sean was there, just running up and down the court. That was 20 and 10 a night. We had an unbelievable team, man, and, and yeah, it hurts because – I only got one year to play with those guys. We only played one year together. Yeah, in 2005, you suffered that, obviously, that orbital bone, that gruesome injury. And by the time you returned, it was, you know, the Spurs had pretty much run away with it. You, I know you said that you could have, you that team would have won the championship that year. Is that something that kind of keeps you up at night still, knowing that that team yeah. was kind of destined for that title? It does, man. I just felt it was right there for the taking. We had full court advantage throughout the whole entire playoffs. I missed the first two games of the Western Conference Finals against San Antonio at our house, and they win them two games. They win them two games. I come back game three. We win game three, but we lose game four, and they close us out at our house. Yeah, that was tough because uh, I felt, man, we had momentum. We was kind of running through the playoffs. I mean, running through the teams in the playoffs that year. Who won it that year? Detroit? That was San Antonio, right? San Antonio won it that year. They did. They yeah. beat Detroit. Yeah. Yeah, I think Rip, Rip and that team won it either before, right before or right after. That was probably the best chance I felt. You know, we had a chance to win a title. I remember after that year, Joe, obviously you were in contract negotiations with the Suns and you talked pretty openly about how you didn't really love the offer that they were giving you, which led you to sign the the mega deal with Atlanta. When you're in that position as a player, walk me through the thought process of, do I want to stay with a contender, but take less money or go to another franchise where they're putting the bag right in front of me? I'll be the man, but I might not be a contender. What's it like in that position as you're weighing those options? Well, you you have to look at pretty much a long-term situation, meaning what's going to be better or what's going to help you in the long run. And uh, I knew it was going to be some learning curves, you know, coming from winning 62, 63 games in Phoenix to a team that had just won 19 games previously. Uh, I knew it was going to be tough, but I wanted that challenge. And uh, I was willing to take I was willing to take up on that challenge, and I did that. You know, the first, you know, year or so here in Atlanta was uh, was brutal, man. It didn't even feel like the NBA. I'm going to be honest with you. It felt like we probably had a couple hundred people in the stands. Yeah, that was that was tough. But we kept grinding. What's it like when you're in that type of environment? I mean, I always think to myself as an athlete, when you're not in a winning environment, it's got to be brutal. Yeah, it is. It's tough. But you know what? I talked to the guys who paved the way or came before me and guys that I know they 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 kept in contact and told me to control the things I have to control, meaning that's going to practice every day, working my butt off, improving, getting better, helping my teammates. And that's those are the things I try to do. And over the course of years, you know, build a pretty solid team and uh getting the playoffs. When you look at guys like Kobe, Stockton, Tim Duncan, who spent their entire careers with one fan franchise, are you envious of that at all? Or are you glad you got to kind of showcase your talent to to few different fan bases. No, I'm not, I'm not envious of it. Uh, I enjoy my route, my process. I think it's 
obviously made me who I am. Uh, I've learned so much from so many different places that I've been that I incorporate a lot of the stuff in my daily life, in my daily routine. So, uh, no, I enjoy it. The people that I've met, the friends that I've made, things that I've seen, you know, have come from me traveling, playing with different teams. I remember when I first heard about the big three. I'm like, no way in hell this thing's going to succeed. Every one of these offshoot leagues, it's always a failure no matter who gets behind it. I don't know what Ice Cube did, who he paid off. This thing has become a monster success. When did you realize you wanted to be part of this? And what the heck has Ice Cube done to make this such a monster success? I didn't know that I was going to be playing in the big three. Not ever. Not even when I first, when they first came around. But I was going through, you know, a, t a tough time in my life, and I needed an outlet, and I thought that it was perfect, you know, to play in the big three. Give me something to do. Give me something to look forward to. And it was awesome. It was actually more than what I expected. I got a chance to play with, you know, two of my college teammates in Genero Fargo and Segario Gibson. So that was that was icing on the cake for me. I'm like, man, we go out and compete on the weekend, work out during the week, kick butt on the weekend. That's what we did. It was first class, first and foremost, you know, Q, you know, he'll fly, you know, the, the player up. And if you want to bring somebody, they, they fly them into, you know, rooms paid, everything. And it was fun, man. The crowds were great. You know, coming out, competing, guys talking stuff. So it was a great environment. I really enjoyed it, and I looked forward to playing in it last year, but it didn't come back, obviously. But, you know, so hopefully they can get something going. Was there ever a fear, Joe, because you might have not been done in the league. Was there ever a fear that, hey, if I go to the big three, my stigma may now be that I'm not an NBA player and I've kind of moved on? Or was it like, like you said, hey, let me take a respite from what I'm doing, and if I ever want to try to make a comeback, I can? Nah, I'm a hooper. I'm, I'm a hooper at heart. Like, this is what I do. Like, I don't, I'm not sure if I could have played another sport. Maybe I could have, but I just felt I was born to hoop. Bro. Like, I, I really do this, and I enjoy it. So I don't take it for granted. So any, any chance I get to go, you know, hoop or play somewhere, best believe if I show up, I'm coming with it. So, uh, yeah, I'm not, I'm not worried about my stigma because I know I can hold my own, regardless, you know, of my age or who I'm playing against. I mean, that's a challenge for me in itself, you know. Being 39, 40 years old, going out there playing with these guys is 20, 22. Yeah, I, I love that. You hit about eight, I think eight to 10 game winners in your NBA career. When you hit that four pointer in the big three and the crowd just erupted, where does that rank on your, you know, game winner list? <laughs> that ranks, it, that's high, man, because I tell you what, three headed monsters were the toughest team we played against, you know, in, in the big three. And I say that because, you know, Reggie guarded me both times we played him, so that kind of took away my post-up game. You know, I had to kind of finesse him the whole game. So it takes a lot of energy for that. And they 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 pretty much kicked our butt handily that whole game until, like, the last six points, man. They, you know, they kind of got stuck in the rut, and, you know, we were just playing helter-skelter. And next thing I know, I'm like, dang, we need four points to win. Now, I'm going to shoot it regardless. Like, you know what I mean? Whether I make it or not, I'm like, four? Like, I'm not trying to tie the game up, get him a chance. We're going to go for the four today. That was so That was so smooth. I knew right when it left your hands, everybody was like, oh, that's it. Was LeBron playing in that? Was LeBron, sorry, was LeBron watching that game? And nah, that was the championship game you're talking about. But yeah. the game that you're talking about against the three-headed monsters, it felt great from the jump. Like, when it came out my hand, it felt like it, it looked like it was going in. It felt like it was going in. So those are, as a shooter, man, those are the best moments. 
you know, when they, when you shoot that ball and it comes out of your hand right and it looks and feels like it's going in, like, it's nothing like that. There was actually just a great moment. I'm sure you saw it because it went viral where LeBron did the shot, turned around right away, and obviously knew it was going in and then started just high-fiving and rolled down the court. Listen, the two of us, we're two short white guys. We're never going to experience this. How often do you know, like, when it leaves your hand, if you were to put a percentage on it, what's that percentage that you know it's going through the net and that you could do something similar to, like, what LeBron did? Mm, 85 90% of the time. Like, when you shoot as a shooter, like, you know whether it's going in or not. The way When it leaves your hand, you know, oh, that's bucket. That's incredible. Incre- 85 to 90% release, and you're just like, it's in. That's amazing to me. Yeah. Every time, every time I shoot, I like, I mean, there, you do have times where it, kind of, it may come off wrong or you may catch it wrong, but for the most part, I don't never think I'm going to miss, regardless if I go three for 17. Like, I'm not like, oh man, when I was three for 10, I didn't think I was going to make the next shot. I always feel like, you know what I mean? Is there ever a time where you are having just a shitty game and you got to stop shooting? Or is the mentality like, no matter what, I'm, I'm throwing it up there? Yeah, nah, it's not. You, you never get to the point to where you stop shooting. You get to a point to where you're like, um, I got to do more. Meaning like, damn, I got to get a rebound, offensive rebound, give me a layup. I just got to see the ball go through the hoop. Or I got to get a foul or something. So I would never, nah, never stop shooting. It's just you probably obviously be a little bit more aggressive trying to get to the rack, but not, not stop shooting. There are some shots, though, that you need to make. One in particular comes out at me. This is my boy, Paul Pierce, 2012. You made him basically crawl on all fours. I mean, that has millions of views on YouTube, and it's used to troll Pierce constantly on tw- on Twitter. Were you surprised by the longevity of that play? And when Pierce joined you in Brooklyn, was there any mention of it? There had to be, right? I think Jason Terry probably may have slid a joke in their hand up, but nobody never really talked about it. You know, I'm never... I ain't even, I'm not even that guy, you know, to, to like rub it in your face. You know what I mean? So now nah, we, 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 we never brought that up, but you know, he, didn't do mention I, it to you? he wasn't like, yo dude, you got me good. Like tap nah. on the ass. Good one. No, nah, that ain't P bro. P ain't finna give you no props like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he, he, he probably told you he, he had to get in a wheelchair or something. He had some excuse ready to roll. No, nah, P ain't finna give you no props like that. You know, I learned a lot from P.O. Uh, you know, that was my second stint with him now. You know, uh, yeah. I called him my rookie year when he had just signed his first big deal. So, Joe, when you end up signing that enormous deal, obviously the Atlanta deal made you the highest paid player in the league at that point. When you have that type of influx of money come in, how does your mindset change from a business perspective? Investments, how much you've got to save? Do you start looking at tech? What was the thought process about how I'm going to position that money for my future? Well, I stayed here in Atlanta, so it wasn't like I went out and bought another house. I didn't do none of that. I just kept with my routine, man. My routine was, you know, uh, train, work my butt off, you know, uh, at the time, uh, just hanging with my son. I don't think it it, it does. It shouldn't change. It shouldn't change who you are as a person anyway. You know, I, I understand that I've been fortunate enough to, you know, live a very comfortable life. But for the most part, my, my routine never changes. But I never, I've always been the same person since day one. We're seeing right now so many players using both their platform and their money to create other opportunities. I mean, Kevin Durant's built a whole media company for himself. LeBron's one of the biggest producers in Hollywood right now. I mean, it's, it's Steph has like got a gajillion dollars in Silicon Valley. 
were there ever those opportunities that once people knew you had that money coming in, were, were those doors beginning to open? And was that something you were interested in? Oh, yeah. 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 I mean, once, once you, you know, making that kind of money, you get all type of, you know, business ventures and guys want to do do deals with you and things of that sort. So you have to cautiously pick, you know, what you're interested in or you know, what you feel like is right. Is it difficult um, in terms of guys coming out of the woodwork or just feel family potentially even? I mean, I, I grew up in Philly. I saw the Iverson saga firsthand. You'd walk into TGI Fridays, he'd have a hundred dudes around him. And, you know, people ask how you blow through 250 million. That's how you blow through 250 million. How difficult is it when people know it's like winning the lottery that that kind of money's coming in? Well, I mean, at first it can be a little difficult. I will be honest with you, but you learn to tell people no, man. That's just what it is. Whether they respect it or not, that's 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 the final. You know, that's the final word. If you continue to help, then at the end of the day, who's going to help the helper when he needs help or she needs help? You know, so you can't you can't you can't continue to do that. Have you made any purchases? You know, when you got that windfall of money, that you know, looking back, you were like, why the hell did I buy this? Nah, because the, the the majority of things that I've done or did was, was for my mother. Uh, she passed away two years ago from cancer. So now I don't regret nothing. I just, you know, wanted her to live a great life. You know, and I, I didn't want her to work, you know, at all, which she didn't. And uh, for what, the past 20 some odd years. And, you know, for me, that was more satisfaction. That was more satisfying than anything. What is it like personally, Joe, when you are able, I mean, I'm very close with my family and I just lost my grandfather last week and, you know, it's, I have a small family, so it's even more impactful when you lose one of them. When you're able to grow up and be able to give something back to someone who gave so much to you to get you into this position, what is that like personally for you? Oh, it's gratifying because you, you understand the sacrifices and hard work that they put in to put you in a better position. So to be fortunate enough to give back or help in some, any form of fashion, you know, I think it, it, it goes a long way. And I'm the only child, by the way, you know, so it was just me and my mother. So I understand what you're saying, like a small family. You say small family, man, it's just me and my son who's 14 and my daughter who's seven. You know what I mean? As far as like intermediate family, like, you know what I mean? It's just those two of my kids I know who gonna have my back regardless whatever goes down. Do they know how good their dad is at basketball? I mean, do they have a comprehension being so young and there being that generational gap, how good you are on the court? My daughter doesn't care. I'm going to tell you that now. She, 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 she cares nothing about basketball. She tell me straight up, Daddy, I'm only doing these drills because you asked me to. Right? <laughs> Don't think this is going to be a thing. You know what I mean? That's, not, that's how she be talking to me. My son at 14, he's you know coming to himself, trying to find himself. He's trying to figure out who he is as a basketball player. He kind of understands. You know, man, him play one-on-one practically all the time. So, you know, he, he he gets it. You know, he's on YouTube a lot. He watches videos. He tells me about the old videos he's seen of me. So, you know, I know he gets it. When you look at your son, and obviously we're seeing so many NBA players who their kids are – just achieving incredible things. You got Bronny James, you got Dwayne's kids. I mean, so many, so many now. Uh, actually, another big three guy. What's his name? Um, oh my God, I'm having a brain fart here. Uh, number one pick. My God, played for Denver. I'm having a brain fart. But we're seeing so many kids right now who are kind of following the legacy. How are you able to separate? So like, are you able to look at your son and can you determine what level he's going to get to in his career? It's D1 player, D3, NBA, 
but also still be a loving dad. How do you kind of balance all that? And can you quickly assert where your son's going to end up? I can't really gauge that. Now, I can have a goal in mind and I'll be like, oh, man, I think he should be here or here. But it's, it's ultimately going to be up to him, the, the, the work that he puts in. So, I'm, I'm, I mean, I don't put no limitations on it. Or I think he's pretty good for his age. You know, he plays against grown men a lot. He, he doesn't get a chance to play against, you know, guys his age that much. So uh, I think in, in, in that itself will help, you know, as he grows. You played 18 seasons in the NBA, which is four times the career of an average player. I'd imagine that some players you played with were born your rookie year. Was there What was the biggest shift in how the game is played from 2001 to 2018, your final year? Was there a notable change in the pace or physicality that you noticed throughout the years? I mean, yeah. When I first came in in 2001, it was traditional two bigs. You know, you pretty much had two bigs. It wasn't no – your four-man wasn't out there shooting threes. It wasn't none of that. Your five wasn't out there shooting threes, you know, to be around generationally. And these guys, now your five pretty much has to be able to shoot a three. If you can't shoot a three or catch a lob as a big man, it ain't no place for you. It ain't no place for you. That's a good point. Yeah, unless you, you know, Embiid or Cousins or somebody like that, AD – but, yeah, you got to be able to catch a lob <laughs> or shoot the three. Are, are you a fan of today's NBA, Joe, or do you kind of miss the the grind and pound NBA that you kind of came into? No, I love it. I love today's NBA. Uh, I love the excitement that it brings, uh, the flair. You know, obviously, I'm a, I'm a dribble guy, so I love to see guys navigate, you know, in traffic, making plays, shooting floaters, dunking. I love it all, man. I love it all, so – you know, I'd be glued to the TV every night. Where did ISO Joe come from? When's the first time you heard it? The first time I heard ISO Joe, uh, I have no idea. Man. I don't. Uh, maybe a time or two in Brooklyn. I don't even think I ever heard it here in Atlanta, but I, I'm not sure. That Armadillo nickname, didn't you? Was that an Arkansas nickname or something? Is that uh, your college nickname? What? It was like the... Something armadillo. I, I don't know. I think I heard it in some YouTube video or something. But if you no, don't even know man. it, then it might be just some bullshit. Nah, nah. nah. What, what's it when you're in front of someone, Joe? And obviously you're going one on one. How much thought process goes into breaking that guy down? Is it just all reflexes, or are you strategically kind of thinking how you're going to approach it? Well, you you strategically you know, figure out how you're going to approach it. But my movements or what I do offensively is going to be based off my defender. So if you guard me and you're reaching or you're sending me left, I mean, I'm going to – whatever you're giving me, I'm going to take it and I'm going to use it to my advantage. So it's not that I can come in and be like, okay, we got seven seconds on the clock. When the ball comes in, I'm going to hit him with the bing, bing, bing. Game time. Nah, I can't explain the moment, man. I can You put me in it, I can show you, though. <laughs> Who had your number as a defender? Who was the toughest guy to beat? I wouldn't say nobody had my number, uh, but, you know, obviously when I was younger, you know, playing against guys that were way more physical, uh, you know, that took time, that took, you know, some adjusting. And, you know, as you learn and you, you know, go through those experiences and you take your L's so many times, then you learn to, you know, to flip the tables and be that guy. I can't really say, you know, one guy who just gave me problems. How about on the opposite end, someone you owned, someone who, when you knew you were coming in, you were going to throw 30-plus on? That was, that was a lot of, that was a lot of team. That was a lot of guys. 
<laughs> you gotta understand, like I was I was six eight playing the two. So there was no guys that, you know, guys who was guarding me, they had to be my size or 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 taller. Guys that was longer, taller, six nine, six ten, long arms, those are the guys who kinda, you know, gave me a little trouble. But for the most part in my position, those guys wasn't guarding me. As a guy who played with Steve Nash on that stacked Phoenix team, was it apparent that he would ultimately become a coach? And do you think he has the managerial abilities to keep that big three in line with team goals? I mean, you can see the, the coaching abilities in him from his point guard instincts and, you know, just how he approached the team. And I think he's, I think, you know, and I don't even know this person. I don't know, but I think he's probably a great players coach just from, you know, playing with him, knowing his demeanor, knowing who he is as a person. Uh, I'm sure those guys cut for him, man, and uh, they're going to do whatever it takes to get everything right, you know, in, in Brooklyn. I think they will. How do you handle three guys like that? If you were in his position, three guys who are all-timers and who are ball-dominant, how do you, how do you like, manage that whole situation? I don't know. I'm sure it's tough. He probably didn't even want it to happen. <laughs> he probably didn't want it to happen just because so, he would have to deal with it, but... Nah, I know that's a tough situation, man, because I think coaches, you know, especially with their top guys, man, you know, you got to coach them, you got to be equal, but at the same time, you want them to be happy. And that's that's just, you know, I just feel like that's going to be a tough task throughout the year. Uh, unless those guys, meaning, you know, Kyrie, James, and KD take it upon themselves, you know, do whatever it takes to win. Obviously, I think James has because I don't want to say take the backseat, but he's doing necessary things for them to kind of be able to hump, and that's being a playmaker, getting guys involved, scoring when he needs to. Because I think KD and Kyrie, they just, they just killers, bro. Like offensively, they just, they just flat out scores, man. That's just what it is. I mean, they can give you thirty every night, both of them. I mean, and this, it's been evident, you know, throughout this season. Regardless who's out there with Kyrie, he gonna put up, 30, he gonna put up thirty points. You know what I mean? That's been fun for me to watch, man, to kind of see those guys navigate and kind of uh, work things out throughout this season because it is going to be a process. You know, it's going to have its ups and downs as they figure each other out. But I think uh, when the timing is right, when those guys get that cohesiveness and get that rhythm together, you know, they're going to be scary. Have, have you ever seen anyone like Durant? Has there ever been anyone on the court that at that size can do everything he can? I'm not sure, man. It's great to watch, too. I will tell you that. Because he does, he make it look effortless. You know, and guarding him when he goes up to shoot that jump shot, we call that tall man. When he shoot that tall man jump shot, you can't block it. You know what I mean? So you just gotta hope he miss. Yeah, it's beautiful to watch. There's this big discussion in the NBA around load management right now, with teams being fined a hundred grand for resting players for nationally televised games. For a guy who's played as long as you have, what's your take on teams strategically resting players? I don't know. And sometimes, you know, guys need rest, especially guys who play in big minutes. If you play anywhere 36, 37, 40 minutes a night, to take a night or two off, I think, yeah, I think you deserve it. But a national TV game, you know, I kind of get the gripes and groans. You know what I mean? You know, that's tough because we as fans, you know, we look forward to seeing those guys play. But being on that side as a player, I know what goes into it. You know, a lot of people just see what goes on on TV, but – you know, you got to see the dog days in practice, the sitting in the cold tubs, the things of that sort that goes into prep preparing to actually play in the game. 
Joe, obviously we touched on this earlier, but I want to talk to you about Kobe Bryant. I got to play with him in high school. I cried like a baby when he passed away. Wow. As someone who got to face him, talk to me about kind of your impressions of Kobe, your memories, maybe some great moments you got to share with him. I fell in love with, uh, you know, the number eight, the number eight Kobe when I was coming up. Now, Kobe ain't but like three years older than me. But when I was coming up, and like when I was in high school, he was in the pros already. So I had a lot of his posters, the number eight Kobe, you know, when he was coming off the bench, starting in the All-Star games, things of that sort. Man, uh, yeah, I thought that was awesome. And getting a chance to compete against him, I thought was was just as great. I got a chance to play with him in the Hurricane, I think it was Hurricane Katrina Relief game in Houston. He came down and played in that game. And that was probably the first time I really, because that was my first year. I had just signed to come with Atlanta, but I hadn't, we hadn't played yet. So that was my first time really getting a chance to kind of be around him and talk to him and things of that sort. Man, I just enjoyed the moment, man. I wasn't, you know, I didn't want to be overbearing. You know what I mean? Like, you know, you can, when you, when you see an idol of yours, you can have so many questions, but you try to keep cool in the moment because you don't want to ruin it. That's a visual uh, moment for me. I remember that. How tough was he on the court? Like, if you were to describe just playing against him, what was it like? It was fun because I think, uh, you know, I, I always feel like when I played against him, he was uh, very physical and he always uh, he always came at me. And so everybody else made me feel the same way. You know what I mean? So I always tried to impose my will as well. Uh, so I always had great battles with Cole. I remember having some back and forth with him in games. So it was fun. I, I mean, I got some great memories. Did he ever give you your respect while you were playing on the court? Anything of, of note? I mean, after the games, just adapt, you know, like keep going, keep working, you know, uh, keep grinding, things of that sort. Uh, so that meant a lot. You know, it didn't take much for me. Uh, like I tell you, he's an idol of mine, but, you know, I never told him, but to get a chance to hang around him and him give me a few words of encouragement, you know, it went a long way. Being in Atlanta, you have so much access to other culture, hip hop stars. I mean, now Atlanta's just the, you know, the home of hip hop. What is it like being a baller in Atlanta as Atlanta was becoming Atlanta and kind of seeing that party scene and all that crazy stuff? Uh, man, it was crazy. Uh, you know, that was the Mike Vick era. Uh, it was when I first got out here, man, it was, I had never seen nothing like it. I'm going to be honest with you. And to be a professional athlete here in Atlanta, man, the, the discipline, you know, that it takes, you know, to play here, you know, it takes a lot of, it. yeah, that was, uh, it was challenging, man. But yeah, it was some great moments as well. I can't imagine. I just can't imagine having that type of environment and still having to show up to practice. I'd be out partying every night. I'd be that dude. I'd be out of the league in two years. You'd never be in the league, Arthur. <laughs> I mean, if I, if I had Joe Johnson, I would have been out of the league in two years. Hey, I'm not going to lie, man. It was, it was tough. It was tough. It was tough. Even as an introvert like you, did you didn't did you ever feel like the pole, or are you like a club guy, or or, or are you just more of a homebody? Man, when I first got here, I was 25 years old, 24 years old. I was with everything. We was out. You know what I mean? Uh, I had two of my cousins living with me at the time, so you know, just I was new. So yeah, we hung out. I can't imagine Joe Johnson partying. You're so laid back. And you're like known to be a pros pro. I'd love to yeah. see you at a club, a young Joe. No, I'm, not, I'm not that. Yeah, I'm not the crazy guy. I'm the guy sitting down chilling. I just people watch, man. You know what I mean? I'm paranoid by nature, so I'm always watching my surroundings. You know what I mean? 
I got a question for you, Joe. If you, Joe Johnson, took over Adam Silver's spot as commissioner today, is there anything about the NBA or the rules that you would change? I'll start while you think. I think we should add just like the big three, that four point, like where you hit that game winner. If we just have one spot on the court that counts as four, I'd be all for that. You can't do that, man. <laughs> you can do that if you were the commissioner. You cannot do that to the game. Right. Steph would average a hundred. I mean, I'm Steph sorry. Would average you can't do that. Hey, look, you can't do that to the game because the game now is at the three-point line because everybody wants to shoot the three. Everybody thinks they can shoot the three. We put a four-pointer spot in there. You're going to have guys just standing on it. You know what I mean? How about this? You only put in the four-pointer for teams that are below 500. So if you're, like, playing the Lakers and you know you're going to lose, like, if you add a four-pointer there, then that will give you – that will – Kind of, you know what I'm saying? Nah, that's gonna kill the integrity of our game, man. We cannot do that. No. All right. Nah. What was nah. your thought process, Joe, when Steph comes in the league and figures out that he's Steph and starts throwing bombs from half court? Like, have you ever seen anything like that in a game where what you know the range that Steph was able to bring in? Now him and Dame Lillard, you know those guys. You know they're pretty much in a in a league of their own, when you're talking about shooting comfortably from one step over half court, like that's like that's that's insane, man. Like we never thought we'd see that. You know what I mean? Now guys are shooting four steps behind the three point line. Like they working on that. They working on that now. What's your range? What's your what, what's the range where you can probably knock in eight out of ten, nine out of ten without even blinking an eye? Yeah, I can do that a few steps behind the NBA three. Even today? Yeah. Interesting. How many do you think you average in, in our men's league? Chelsea Piers in, in New York. How Ooh. many do you think you could average? We're like – so there are probably like five players have played high school or more. Like no, there's like maybe one D1 college player on, on the floor at one time. Um, I probably – I average a triple-double. I would probably give y'all about 45, 15, and 15. Yeah. That's on and off. I actually wanted to ask you that. We had we had Jay Williams on, and he said he loves nothing more than abusing guys in men's leagues. It is like listen, listen, because you gotta understand, you're gonna get guys best shot when you go into a men's league. Like if I'm back home in Little Rock, we play in the men's league, I'm getting everybody's best shot. I know that. So me, I'll probably, you know, being one of the older guys playing in the league. It's, it's fun, man. It's gratifying to go in there and still be able to play with those young dudes. I, I enjoy it. That's what you should do for your, like, next, you know, chapter. You should just go to random parks, film yourself, just just pounding on these average Joes, film it, put it on YouTube. We'll help market it, and then we can go into business together. <laughs> right. Sound like a player, though. I'll write something up. I'll, I'll have my people get in contact with you. That, that's what people don't realize, Joe, how good you guys are. I mean, you're at the elite of elite levels, but you take the 12th guy off the bench and you put him in a men's league and that dude's, you know, crushing everybody. When people see you on the court, if they're just like average Joes like myself and they obviously don't get how good you are. I mean, the punishment you have to inflict, like it's just got to be insane. This is like our livelihoods. Like we've done this. Like, we do this for bread and, bread and meat when we, when we eat. You know what I mean? So it's like, if I wake up every day and my job is to go to the gym and hoop, like, how do you think you're going to just beat me? Like, if I'm going to a rec league or men's league, you think you're just going to run over me? Like, I've really done this for a living. You know what I mean? You're 39, though. Yeah, I know, man. Hey, right. 
but don't let that 39 fool you. I know. I know. I'm not I'm not that. Yeah, bad. listen, I'm going to be I'm going to be 43 in May, Joe. It only gets harder. Shit starts hurting that never hurt before. It's awful. Why you got to do hot yoga, baby? Listen, that's why you got to take care of your body, man. You only get one, bro. You got to take care of your body. Hey, listen, it's at, at some point, at least two to three times out the week, you probably should be touching some weights. That's the only way your body can hold up. Your body and your your your, your muscles and joints. That's like medicine for them. It keeps them strong. I work out every day, Joe. Honestly, like look at look at this. I mean, this is not bad for forty three right there. Not bad. Not bad. Not bad. <laughs> He's using a needle and sticking it in his ass. That's why. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like literally, as Joe was saying, you need to work out your body. I was about to put into the chat. The, I went on Expedia and booked my tickets to Atlanta for hot yoga with Joe Johnson. <laughs> Call him Arthur Canseco over here. <laughs> hey, hey, hold on. Where, where y'all at, though? I'm in New York. I'm in Hell's Kitchen right now, and this guy's in Boston. I'm saying, is anything open in New York? It's a dude. It's the apocalypse. When you said, I was going to actually ask you about that. What do you think about four and a half years here, man? Do you love it? It was tough, man. I lived literally like I lived in the heart of Manhattan. I lived probably about four to five blocks from ground zero. Like, you know, I was really in the heart of Manhattan. I lived right across the street from a college. So whenever I came out of my uh, my condo, I'm talking about the streets, they stay flooded. You know what I mean? It was a lot, it was a lot. And I was half and half. So if I'm in Manhattan, we was practicing in New Jersey, but playing in Brooklyn. It was brutal, bro, it was brutal. It's two worlds, it's like two different worlds. It was brutal, it was brutal. Like you literally in a car for, on a game day, you're going to be in a car for at least three hours, man. You know how that, that, that's, that sucks to ride to the gym, have to be in traffic for three hours and then hoop. Yeah, to go like five miles. Yeah, that was tough, man. That was tough. Did you enjoy the Nets experience? I loved it. I loved playing. That. It was just the living. We, everybody pretty much, you know, lived in, uh, lived in New Jersey. So, you know, we never really done shoot around in Brooklyn at the arena. That's the, you know, we was here when it first opened. Like, we never done shoot-around there. We practiced in East Rutherford, uh, did shoot-arounds in East Rutherford. We just played in Brooklyn. All right, Joe, we're going to get you out of here on our final segment. It's uh, sponsored by Boston Markets, all-new Nashville Hot Sandwich. I want to talk to you because as a big three MVP, no one understands three-on-three battles better than you. And you recently said that Harden, Durant, and Irving are the best scoring trio of all time but we don't know if they're going to be the best trio of all time. So I want to ask you one-on-one in a big three style battle, taking the Durant Harden Irving trio and putting them up against other legendary trios who wins the game. Cool. And three on three, three on three, big three style. The first trio they play is Jordan Pippen Kukoc. Oh, I got to go with Jordan Pippen and Kukoc. Next one. Shaq, Kobe, Pal Gasol. Man, come on. Okay. <laughs> I gotta go with uh see and then who gonna guard Shaq? Nobody. I don't think who anyone guards Shaq anywhere. But who gonna guard Durant? Who gonna guard who gonna guard them? Who gets the ball first? I think that's the biggest question. Because if they, if it's winners, the first team that gets the ball. I gotta go. I'm going with the Lakers, man. I'm not about to beat them. Chad Kobe and no Powell Gasol. Come on. The next trio is Bird, Mikhail, Parrish. They might get them. They probably can get them. Bird, disrespect. 
You think the Durant Brooklyn guys beat him? Yeah, I think they might even get him. Next one is KG, Pierce, and Ray Allen. They probably gonna be fighting that one. They probably gonna make it out of that one. <laughs> <laughs> that one, they're gonna be a scrap. They're gonna be a scrap. They ain't gonna even finish that game. I'll take that down. Just forfeit. Yeah, they ain't gonna finish that one, bro. We have a no contest. All right, the next trio is Magic, Kareem, and Worthy. Ain't nobody beating them. And then our final trio is Steph, Clay, and Draymond. They'll, they'll probably get them. The Durant Nets take them? Yeah, Durant, the Durant Nets will probably beat them. Interesting. Well, that was our uh, our hustle round brought to you by Boston Market, all-new Nashville Hot Sandwich. Joe, you've been pretty awesome, man. Thanks so much for all the fun memories and great answers and you had a heck of a career, man. It's got to be fun to reflect back on what you've been able to do and just see everything you accomplished. Man, I appreciate it, man. appreciate you guys. It was a pleasure talking to y'all. Hey, I'll see y'all down the road. For hot yoga, hopefully. Hot. Hey, 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 namaste. <laughs> namaste. <laughs> All right, Bob. Peace. So, thanks so much, man. All right, folks, that was NBA vet, Team USA basketball member, and big three final MVP, Joe Johnson. Great interview, Matt. Great interview. Yeah, it was nice to talk to him because Joe was originally drafted by my Celtics, I believe. And then he was he was really promising in those first half of the season. And then we just shipped him off for some reason. It was just interesting to hear his take on that if he had any ill will toward the Celtics and you know obviously the player he became it was kind of a you know probably pretty vindicating for him to uh, have all that success and then just you know for a team that basically tossed him aside when he was barely in the league for like two months so you know a lesser man probably would have been a lot more angry about it but Joe Johnson as we said is a pretty even keeled guy and I think we can learn a lot from his demeanor. I know I can. You can't be angry when you've made $200 million, Matt. I don't care if you play in Sacramento your whole career. When you're making that kind of money, it don't matter. But he's one of those guys that he's a quiet superstar. He's not about building his brand or being on Instagram or, you know, being the next Hollywood movie star. He's just a good player who loves the craft. And he even said in the interview, he's all about ball. And the fact, again, that he's joining Team USA and continuing the hustle. Good for Joe. Joe, you're welcome back on the show anytime, man. Huge fan of your career. And Matt, I always love hearing, by the way, from the players who get traded from their original team, what they feel when they're traded and how much they love coming back and having revenge stats on their team. One of probably the the most famous plays of his career is when he almost shattered uh, Paul Pierce's um, ACL Paul Pierce just like fell back in the most awkward way possible and he hit the jumper and it was you know and it must have felt like Deshaun Jackson you know it must have felt like that when he went up and just shredded up the Eagles all right listen we have a huge episode coming out on Thursday we've got Kevin James and Freddie Stroma they're the stars of Netflix's new TV show The Crew obviously Kevin James everyone knows him A-list comedy star Freddie is a huge rising star. We've got great stuff coming with them. And then our second guest of the episode, NBA three-point specialist Troy Daniels, played with the Lakers and Nuggets last year. Man, we covered the gamut with him, didn't we, Matt? 
Oh, that was great. I always love the NBA guys. I grew up an NBA fan. He's had his experience, obviously, playing with LeBron and endless troves of content from Mr. Daniels. Yeah, and I love hearing what LeBron's 35th birthday party was like. So I think everyone's going to really love both Kevin James and Freddie Stroma's interview, as well as Troy Daniels. 100% agree. And a little housekeeping here. So all of these episodes going forward, we are going to put on Bro Bible's IGTV. So the full episodes with all of our guests, you'll get to see it visually if you like me and Arthur's face. And obviously, they're still going to be on wherever you listen to podcasts. We're going to throw them up on Bro Bible's YouTube channel just to try to diversify our portfolio here, if you will. Um, you can follow us on Twitter at endless double underscore hustle. And you can follow us on Instagram at endless hustle pod. We'll be posting the juiciest clips there. You can follow me on my personal Twitter at Mr. Cohan, K-E-O-H-A-N. Same for Instagram and Artie, take it away. I'm on Twitter at Arthur Cade on Instagram at it's me, Arthur Cade. Guys, we're back on Thursday with another jam packed episode. See y'all then. Peace. <laughs>